Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. But hopefully, this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. It was U.S. President Donald Trump yesterday at the United Nations, a speech that uh, got the attention of a lot of people, uh, including presumably uh, the North Korean leadership. Now, let's be clear. I mean, we're talking about a nation of 25 million people. So if we're going to totally destroy North Korea, that's a very messy scenario, to put it mildly. Uh, I realize that this president more or less inherited this situation. Certainly, North Korea does represent a threat, a threat we should be concerned about. But what are they going to make of this? What do they make of the nickname, by the way? That seems really just odd to me. But back to the threat itself. Is it possible that this plays in to the, the regime's worldview, into the regime's paranoia? Uh, that they're really convinced that the United States intends on destroying them? And that maybe this confirms it in their minds. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program, Marcus Noland uh, with the Peterson Institute for International Economics, one of the authors of its North Korea Witness to Transformation blog. Marcus, thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. What were your impressions then of the, the language used by the president yesterday? Well, uh, having watched him in action for two years now, um, on the campaign stump, and then uh, as president, um, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, but nevertheless, it was disappointing for him to essentially use the language and kind of the persona of a Republican campaign rally in the United Nations General Assembly. I don't see how the name calling, you know, Rocket Man, uh, does anything to advance U.S. diplomacy. Um, and I think that the threat to totally destroy North Korea, even if it was in the context of if North Korea does something to the United States or its allies, and then signaling that, you know, we don't really want to do it, we're open to negotiation, that is what the U.N. is for. Just that phrase, I expect, will be repeated time and time and time and time again on North Korean national television. The North Korean regime lives on this narrative that uh, they are under existential threat from hostile foreign forces led by the United States, all the deprivation, all the denial of rights uh, that the Kim regime has imposed on its people is justified by by this overarching need to 
to protect the country from these implacable foes. And Donald Trump's speech yesterday was a North Korean propagandist dream. Uh, it was it was the soundbite of the century from from the standpoint of the Kim Jong Un regime. Interesting. Now, I mean, those of us in the West, we we struggle to make sense then of what what the North Koreans are doing. Why are they so determined to uh, possess nuclear weapons capability to to be able to reach uh, North America with with ICBMs to to seem so belligerent, knowing that surely they must know uh, the capabilities of the United States and its allies. So how do we make sense of of their actions? Well, you know, the North Koreans have had uh, interest in nuclear weapons going back a very long way. The founder of the country, Kim Il-sung, was an anti-Japanese guerrilla, and he was truly impressed by the American ability to bring Imperial Japan to its knees with two atomic bombs in 1945. So the North Koreans uh, have, since 1945, been very interested in, in, in atomic weaponry. Um, nowadays, uh, there's, uh, you know, dispute and disagreement among various observers about the exact motivation for the nuclear program, but it's quite clear that the North Koreans regard this as an absolute core political goal of the regime, to develop nuclear weapons and have the missile systems capable of delivering them. People argue about ultimately what is their motivation. Are these basically for defensive reasons, to maintain deterrence, which would allow them to demobilize their giant conventional army? They have more than a million men under arms in a population, as you mentioned, of only 25 million. They have the world's fourth largest army in a relatively small uh, country. Uh, so is this the kind of a cheap way to, to get deterrence and then they can demobilize the conventional army and get on with it? Is it a way to threaten the South Koreans to get unification on their terms? Uh, or and, and I think the least likely is it's intentionally meant as some kind of threat against the United States rather than a way to check the United States behavior in case of hostilities on the Korean Peninsula. Right. And because, I mean, it does seem at some level to be a case of showing off its capabilities as a deterrent. I mean, is that part of it? Oh, sure. It's not only uh, are they attempting to deter us. Um, there is it, The regime has made these accomplishments central to its own legitimacy internally. So um, they lit, they they. They explain to the people the reason we went through a famine, the reason why your lives have been hard, is that we've had to devote all these resources to these military programs to protect the country from, I, I, I hope this doesn't violate Canadian radio, but it's never just the Americans, it's the American bastards. It's always, we have to protect ourselves from the American bastards. And... And so, you know, they literally put these, you know, they put pictures of, you know, uh, missiles with atomic bombs, you know, on posters, on billboards, on postage stamps. So this is not only a way to intimidate us or attempt to intimidate us, it is internally uh, their great achievement. Well, or or trade is their great achievement. Right. If this is a message intended for... American allies, if it's a message intended for the United Nations itself, for the Americans to, to lay out what, what I think otherwise be a rational position, and that, look, we don't want this to escalate to a military conflict. It could, and we don't want it to get there, so let's inject some urgency into the situation that we need to find some other resolution so that it doesn't get to that point. Well, the interesting thing is, 
Um, it may be that there is no diplomatic solution available. It may simply be that the, that the various uh, governments are so far apart in their, in their uh, preferences that there's, there's literally no way to reach a settlement. But if there is a way to reach a settlement, oddly enough, um, the, the constellation of political forces in the United States may be favorable to it. Uh, we're in a situation right now in the United States where the executive branch of the government and the Congress, both houses of the Congress, are controlled by the Republican Party. And I've always believed that if one was going to get a negotiated solution with, with the North Koreans, it would require a Republican president. Uh, the problem in the past with Democratic presidents such as Bill Clinton, most obviously, but to a certain extent Barack Obama, is that the Republicans in Congress would use North Korea policy as a cudgel to sort of beat them up politically. Well, having a Republican president and a Republican Congress would allow that president to negotiate uh, with less concern that the Congress was going to play Monday morning quarterback. And so if we could ever get to the negotiating table, there's no guarantee we would get to a solution. But we might be in a position for a kind of Nixon goes to China moment or Menachem Begin making peace with the Egyptians. You know, the, you know, taking the, the conservative guy who you know is not selling out the country and then let him make the deal. And then, of course, Donald Trump's personal self-conception is, a, is as a great deal maker. He has indicated both during the campaign and after becoming president a willingness to talk to Kim Jong-un. So who knows? Uh, maybe some of this bluster is to increase the sense of urgency with the ultimate result that we actually do resume negotiations, whether they are successful or not. And how realistic do we have to be about how much we can achieve with uh, negotiations with the North Koreans? What, what does a solution really even look like at this point? Well, so there's, you know, what I'm about to say is not particularly original. Uh, lots of people from varying political perspectives in the United States have sketched out roughly the same kind of solution. And that is, there is no formal end to the Korean War. The, 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 the fighting ended with an armistice, so there's no, there's no peace treaty. And the United States and the DPRK, the formal name of North Korea, uh, do not recognize each other. So as part of the process of actually signing a peace treaty to end the Korean War, and establishing uh, diplomatic uh, negotiations uh, relations between the United States and North Korea, we would, uh, you know, you do a variety of things, but one of them would be to recognize, as both the North and South Korean governments have done, that their desire is for a nuclear-free Korean Peninsula. Both North and South Korean governments have said this. So you say that's the end state. A nuclear-free Korean Peninsula is the end state. Now. In the interim, there is a legacy issue having to do with the North Korean nuclear program. So, in essence, you freeze it. No new testing, no new development, no new, uh, and certainly no proliferation off the, off the uh, peninsula. Would that be, and, and in return, the United States and others give the North Koreans various security guarantees, you know, and as part of the whole package, there's probably some economic assistance and so on and so forth. Now, would that kind of freeze with the ultimate, you know, somewhere into the future denuclearization, would that be sufficient? Well, from our standpoint, it's certainly not optimal. But then we've lived with the North Koreans basically holding Seoul hostage with conventional forces for decades. And so if you could keep the North Korean nuclear program sewed up at its current state and not proliferating 
off the peninsula, as as there has been problems in the past. I think the United States would not regard that as the best outcome, but I think it's probably one we could live with. Whether the North Koreans would go along with that or not is another matter entirely. The notion that we can very specifically target North Korean capabilities, that we could somehow bomb their, their missile facilities or take out their, de- you know, degrade their capability in some ways. Is that realistic? Or, you know, once, once the bullets are flying, would, would that escalate uh, and take us to a very bad place? Well, that really is a kind of existential question. I think that, let me, let me give you the first step in that process, which I think is pretty defensible. So the North Koreans are shooting off missiles. And the United States and its allies have various missile defense plans. Uh, people, many people here in Washington are starting to advocate a policy in which we basically go to all the concerned parties, Chinese, Russians, everyone, we explain exactly what we're going to do. If you shoot a missile up over international waters, we will attempt to shoot it down. And if we miss, well, we've, we've gained useful information for improving our system, and if we hit it, we denied the North Koreans the information they would have gained from that test flight. So we start off by just knocking missiles over international waters out of the air. The next step would be counter-retaliating uh, against missile launch sites. And the, the idea there is that uh, the North Koreans may be strange, uh, but they're not suicidal. They're not, they're not irrational. So their response to a targeted counterattack on, say, a missile launch facility would not be the wholesale shelling of Seoul. Um, that's something that American military planners have considered. Uh, up until now, obviously, nobody has, has ever been willing to squeeze that trigger um, because the, the possibility of escalation is, once it starts escalating, uh, given the current configuration of forces, the uh, results could be truly horrific. Can missile defense then serve as uh, a blanket of sorts, a blanket of protection against uh, possible ICBMs? Does it also send a message to the North Koreans that, you know, we've, we've got you in check, that, that pursuing this capability is, is pointless? Well, it, it, it does that. Uh, it also is, I, I spend part of the year in Hawaii where I have another job, and uh, you know, the people in Hawaii feel uh, uh, particularly exposed. Sure. Uh, you know, it reassures the populations there, you know, it allows you to have a good tourism industry, people not worried about getting hit with missiles. Um, but the other thing it does is the development of these missile, these missile defense systems, both the long-range and shorter-range missile defense systems, give China and Russia a certain amount of heartburn. And uh, that may not be a bad thing. If, if China doesn't like the sorts of missile defense systems that the United States is installing in South Korea and in Japan, then the appropriate response is stop complaining or retaliating against South Korean economic interests in China, but rather uh, pull in the leash on the North Koreans. So uh, the, the defense systems both reassure our population, but they also may have a useful diplomatic effect in terms of encouraging China and Russia to behave more responsibly towards their uh, ally. Well, some interesting points. We'll leave it there, Mark. Is more at PIIE.com. That's the website for the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Thanks so much for your insight here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, take care. Marcus Noland of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, one of the authors of its North Korea Witness to Transformation blog following events uh, in that part of the world. So his point here is that, you know, that, that choice of language plays into what they believe and what North Koreans are brainwashed with constantly. 
that the Americans want to destroy us. And, and they'll certainly seize on that. So maybe to that end, it was a little bit reckless. But I think at the same time, it's worth noting that, look, if we have to, if it comes to it, we will. And they need to know that and understand that. Anyway, 403-974-8255 is the number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.